on today's episode of Turning Season Podcast. Of all of the species that have ever existed, 99.9% are not with us today. And there's no doubt in my mind that human beings will become extinct one of these days. And given that every cell in my body is descended in an unbroken chain from the first cell of life on earth, and that every particle in my body has been here since the beginning of time and just woven itself into countless different forms, there's no doubt that I, in some sense, am going to be around when that final collapse of humanity takes place. And I'm hoping we have millions and millions more years of glorious life on Earth, and I dedicate my life to that. But on the other hand, there's no doubt that in some sense I'm going to be witnessing that final moment, whether it's in this lifetime or as some future being in some future lifetime. And so the question arises, well, whenever that might be, how does one live at a time like that? That's the voice of John Seed, and you are in for a treat today in hearing his answer to that question, how do we live at a time like this, and hearing about how he's come to his answer. I'll introduce John more thoroughly in a minute, but if you don't recognize his name, I'll tell you now that you are about to listen to a wise elder, admired leader, and a beautiful human being who's a lot of fun to talk with, who has made core contributions to deep ecology and the work that reconnects, and to the protection of life on Earth for more than 40 years. I'm so thankful to have had the opportunity to speak with him and to be able to share our conversation with you. You're listening to Turning Season Podcast, your regular dose of active hope in the great turning, bringing you news and deep conversations about our adventure toward a life-honoring, life-sustaining way of being human on Earth. This show is for every one of you who's awake to our multiple crises, feels your love for life on Earth, and chooses to participate in cultivating ways of life we can believe in. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I'm a facilitator of the work that reconnects, an acupuncturist and dream worker, and a believer in the power of conversation. This podcast is one way the great turning happens through me. Welcome and thank you for being here. We'll jump in shortly to the conversation with John Seed, but briefly beforehand for anyone who is not familiar with experiential deep ecology workshops, also known as the work that reconnects workshops, it might be helpful to know that these are group gatherings, sometimes for as little as a couple of hours, sometimes for 10 days, where people go through a series of teachings, meditations, and exercises together. These gatherings are where we travel the spiral I've mentioned in previous episodes, beginning always with gratitude. So we'll do practices related to gratitude. And then we move into honoring our pain for the world, a sort of truth-speaking process where we acknowledge our anger, fear, grief, numbness, and longing. And then we come around the spiral into practices and teachings related to seeing with new and ancient eyes, which includes seeing our interconnection with other humans, other forms of life, and also past and future generations. This is where we sometimes do deep time practices, expanding our sense of time. John shares quite a bit about this part of the spiral during the conversation you're about to hear. And the final stage is called going forth, and we look at how we want to move forward in our lives after the gathering. So now you'll have an idea of what John's referring to when he talks about the role these events play in him functioning at his peak. All right, on to our conversation. My guest today is John Seed. John is the founder and director of the Rainforest Information Center in Australia. He's been involved in direct actions to protect Australian rainforests since 1979, and he is a very well-loved, well-known leader and teacher of deep ecology, collaborator with Joanna Macy in the development of the work that reconnects. Any of you who've participated in a work that reconnects workshop, you may have experienced the practice called the Council of All Beings, where each person lets themselves be spoken through 
by an other than human being. John and Joanna created this practice together back in 1985, a story I recently enjoyed reading about in the anthology, A Wild Love for the World. Joanna Macy and John Seed also co-authored the book, Thinking Like a Mountain Toward a Council of All Beings with Pat Fleming and Arnie Ness. It is truly awe-inspiring to look at the timeline and all the ways John has been protecting the living earth in his over 40 years of action from producing films and performing music to campaigns for protecting ecosystems and species in locales around the world, initiating a permaculture food security project in Zimbabwe, organizing actions in Sydney against the timber mafia in Borneo, tree planting projects, workshops, lectures, and most recently, as you heard about in my episode with Liz Downs, campaigning to protect rainforests in Ecuador from mining, mostly by Australian mining companies. John was awarded the Order of Australia Medal by the Australian government for his services to conservation of the environment in 1995, and he has only continued his services in the years since then. Within the deep ecology and work that reconnects communities, many of us have heard of John having his realization decades ago about the interconnectedness of all life on earth when he perceived that he was not John Seed protecting the rainforest, but the rainforest protecting itself. And recently, John has been through a real struggle with cancer, and I am so thankful. We're so blessed to have him here with us right now. Welcome, John, and thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thanks very much, Lailan. I'd love to ask you first, before we dive into more about your story and what's inspiring to you right now, these open sentences that we do in the work that reconnects and deep ecology. So if you'd like to finish this sentence, however you're moved, some things I love about being alive on earth are. Some things I love about being alive are um, reading to my eight-year-old son, River, before he goes to sleep at night. Mm. Something that I love about being alive on Earth are living in an eco-village surrounded by neighbours who uh, smile at each other as we pass and uh, having a big forest straight out the back gate. Mm -hmm. Think, things I love about being alive at this time are I love... Um, being at such a critical time in the history of Earth where everything seems to hang by a single thread. And uh, I just feel so privileged to, to be here and to be witnessing and to be able to engage at a time like this. Mm, thank you. And how about this one? When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is... When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is just that it could have been so different, that uh, it just feels so unnecessary in some way for this extraordinary destruction and collapse to be taking place. That, uh, you know, when I think about uh, human beings able to send spaceships to Pluto and be able to successfully do these incredible things. The fact that we can't somehow seem to just pull ourselves together and step back from the brink, um, it uh, breaks my heart. Mm. I'm with you. Thank you. I was thinking about asking you about the three stories of our time. And I feel you're already beginning to speak into that, especially the great unraveling, which you're sharing both as a heartbreaking reality and as something that you're loving to, to be here for this moment. And is there any more you'd want to reflect on about 
where you see yourself in the three stories or how you're relating to them. And for listeners, the three stories being three ways of looking at what's happening for humanity right now. Business as usual, the great unraveling, sometimes being called collapse, and the great turning, the shift that we're in, the adventure story into a life-sustaining society. How are you relating to those, John? Well, um, I guess I'd like to continue with, um, you know, what you were saying just before that, and the fact that it's both heartbreaking and uh, an extraordinary um, opportunity to be alive at a time like this. And uh, where that goes for me, which also, of course, relates to those three stories, is that, um, well, I guess I'd start by saying that we live in a an unsentimental universe, it seems to me, that we live in a universe where entire galaxies can explode and things, you know, certainly our sun will go into supernova one of these days and blow away everything, the earth will cease to exist. And I know that of all of the species that have ever existed, 99.9% are not with us today. You know, that, it, that extinction is the rule rather than the exception. And there's no doubt in my mind that human beings will become extinct one of these days. And I guess given the expanded sense of identity that experiential deep ecology gives us, this realisation that um, every cell in my body is descended in an unbroken chain from the first cell of life on Earth and that every particle in my body has been here since the beginning of time and just woven itself into countless different forms, there's no doubt that I, in some sense, am going to be around when that final collapse of humanity takes place. And I'm hoping that uh, we have millions and millions more years of glorious life on Earth um, and I vote for that and I dedicate my life to that. But on the other hand, there's no doubt that in some sense I'm going to be witnessing that final moment, whether it's um, in this lifetime or, you know, as some future being in some future lifetime. And so the question arises, well, whenever that might be, um, how does one live at a time like that? How does one live at a time when we may be the last human beings, we may be indeed the last vertebrates, we may be the last mammals, we may be the last life itself, perhaps. And um, what kind of life is appropriate at a time like that? And the answer that comes to me is that um, first, uh, I've got nothing more important to do than to struggle to uh, maintain and to protect life and to um, and to try to create the conditions for um, for many many generations for my son and for his children you know for for success for humanity but on the other hand um, I think that given how close to the brink we appear to be it's really important to uh, devote a large segment of my life to just celebrating what a marvelous, incredible opportunity it's been, you know, to look back at four and a half billion years of successful evolution, to look back and to realize that every single ancestor that I've had, both human and pre-human, was intelligent enough to reach the age of being able to re reproduce itself before it was consumed. An incredible pedigree that each of us each, each being that's alive today shares this pedigree that had one single ancestor lacked the intelligence of being able to reproduce itself, um, I wouldn't be here. And so it, it's, it's, it's impossible to give up hope given such an incredible record of success 
surely there's an opportunity for continued success. And I think that part of that is just remembering how long we've been here and what a marvelous, what a marvelous trip it's been. And to give thanks for that and to just feel immense gratitude for the, the opportunity to have, to have witnessed um, these things. And, and that leads to the gratitude for the opportunity to be alive today, regardless of what happens next. Wow. Yeah, I'm feeling it just listening to you speak about it, the, the, the real miracle that we're here at all, that unbroken chain and the pedigree. And I want to ask you, you know, I know your time protecting rainforests and so many other forms of life goes back decades now. But I wonder before that, how did you come to this expanded sense of identity to where you are so conscious of how each of your cells goes back in that unbroken chain and in some form you will be here into the future. What's that journey been like for you or what was it like long ago? Well, um, I would have to first credit psychedelics that when I was um, in my mid twenties in 1972, um, living in London, Living, uh, I was uh, a systems engineer for IBM. Uh, I was in an unhappy marriage, drinking a lot, and pretty lost and unhappy. And um, I had this extraordinary awakening, and um, my life changed. It seemed from one minute to the next, and uh, I moved into a new life. Uh, I felt as though I was reborn. And um, from there, uh, I moved into meditation, Buddhist meditation, and spent many years in a meditation practice. And so that when um, in 1979, um, I felt the call of the rainforest, I felt that both of these things had prepared me for, um, for being able to um, being able to have that experience and being able to have the life that um, followed from there. And how did you experience feeling the call of the rainforest? Well, that's, that's, that's as hard to put into words as it would be to try to explain the LSD experience, that there's just some things that are beyond words. But all I know is that I was living in, uh, I was living in Bodhi Farm, a community of meditators that we'd started in the in the hills of uh, northern New South Wales in Australia in the forest. Um, we were growing our own food, building our own houses, delivering our own babies. We built a meditation centre and we're organising meditation retreats. And I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life doing that when um, in August of 1979, I happened to be at the local monthly um, farmer's market, I guess. And um, there was a, a band playing on the stage. And after the band finished, one of my neighbors got on the stage and uh, announced that um, the um, government forestry commission was coming in the next day to log the rainforest at the end of Terrania Creek Road. And could everyone please come and help to try to stop that from happening? And I had no particular interest in rainforest. I didn't know that rainforest existed. I didn't know that there were rainforests in Australia. I love the bush. You know, we all love the bush and we lived in the bush, but um, there was no ecology movement to speak of back then. And um, to my surprise, I found myself uh, going to the end of Terrania Creek Road the next day. Um, I guess... It was because a neighbor had asked for help and I was definitely into, um, you know, um, the neighborhood and the community and things like that. But anyway, while I was there and in that heightened atmosphere of, uh, of bulldozers and uh, policemen and, and so on, I just had this uh, experience of, uh, um, I guess it was the next big event in my life after um, LSD and Buddhism was just this feeling that the uh, forests were calling to me and um, I, was, um, I was able to hear the call. And it was a 
kind of bewildering and um, disconcerting because it had nothing to do with uh, the kind of um, mindset, with the kind of narratives that I was telling myself, you know, didn't really relate to Buddhism very well. Uh, but in any case, uh, it was undeniable. And um, pretty soon I'd run away with the Save the Rainforest Circus and never look back. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, thank you for telling us that story, even though it is so hard to put into words, because I know there are many people listening who are still finding their way to a sense of what is mine to do right now in this time of so many crises and the caring is there, uh, but the clarity about how to protect or serve life on earth is, it's very overwhelming, I think from a mental standpoint of trying to figure out what to do. So yeah. it's, it's really helpful to hear your story. And I just want to highlight that you shared that you opened yourself up to shifts in consciousness, that that was a big part of it. And then also that simple statement that I was into helping my neighbors, you know, that, that when we're paying attention to where help is being asked for, that can also really be a, a prompting. And then you never know what what else might come through so powerfully yep. like it did for you. I definitely feel like I was blessed by the life that has been handed to me. Do you know, like I can't take any kind of responsibility for it. You know, it just feels like one, you know, uh, very, very lucky accident after another. And, um, mm. and so, I, you know, I just uh, give thanks. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, I, I had the opportunity to listen to you at one of the School for the Great Turning book group Zoom meetings earlier this year. And you mentioned that in all these years of activism, doing these experiential deep ecology workshops is part of what has kept you, kept you oriented, kept you clear and, and motivated and knowing what to do next. I want to just open that as a very open question to talk about what these types of workshops and getting together with other humans and doing these council of all beings practices, how does that help you? Well, I mean, I came to the council of all beings through meeting my teacher, Joanna Macy, and I met her because I participated in one of the workshops that she was doing in Australia in the mid-80s, which she called Despair and Empowerment. And um, I found that, um, you know, her uh, explanation of uh, the importance of acknowledging and expressing and sharing these deep feelings, which are more or less banished from polite society these days, um, was uh, had had a, a, an enormous impact that uh, um, quite contrary to what I might have imagined that you know that if I were to fully open to the depths of the anguish and despair and terror and rage that I might feel when I uh, open myself to really experiencing how I feel about what's happening to our earth. Um, rather than being crushed or, or, or demoralized or destroyed by these feelings, I experienced a profound sense of empowerment exactly as she had promised. And so um, this was like a, a hugely important thing for me to learn. And in consequence, you know, despair and empowerment or honoring our pain for the world has been a central part of these deep ecology workshops ever since. And um, as the facilitator of this work, I not only, um, you know, create the, create the space, help to, you know, create the safe uh, container for people to have this experience, but I, I'm part of that circle. Once I've created the container and once we've started the circle, I'm merely a participant in that circle. And so, but I'm the participant that has the extraordinary privilege of being able to do this over and over again, many times in the year, because I'm facilitating it. And what I found is that 
uh, the empowerment that I experience feeds directly into my um, my work as a rainforest activist, my work to uh, um, you know to protect the earth, and um, I, I I I feel like I personally need this probably at least ten times a year to be functioning at in my optimal way. You know that mm. um, uh, especially the, over the last uh, years since. Um, you know, I've been dealing with medical issues and so on, and I haven't really had the opportunity to do that. I've really noticed the difference in, uh, um, and so now that I'm um, getting back into um, facilitating and therefore participating in this work, um, I feel like it's um, it's coming back again. So in, in a way, it's that work with feelings is in some ways um, the core of um you know, how um, the workshops feed into the activism. Mm -hmm. That's so incredible to me to think about after all these decades that you you notice so clearly that about 10 times a year is what keeps you at, you know, at your best, whatever that that might mean at the time. And I think contrary to the idea that this is something we might do once or twice, that this is a practice, a way of relating to our feelings about the world and relating to community that can actually sustain us. That is something we come back to again and again. And of course, um, you know, that's the part that stands out the most clearly, but uh, the other part of the workshop, which is the deep ecology experiential exercises, the part that I brought when Joanna and I met, and uh, that was the part that I brought to the party, um, uh, that is probably equally responsible, but it's less obvious to me or less visible or something, that um, when we allow ourselves to nourish our ecological identity, when we allow ourselves to actually experience ourselves as being far more than this uh, shallow, social fiction that we normally identify with, you know, name, rank and serial number, you know, what religion are you, what's your level of education and these things. And we actually allow ourselves to remember that we're um, descended in this unbroken chain and so on, that this also deepens the commitment that we have to the whole show, you know, the whole glorious show and keeping that show on the road. Uh, but it also frees us from a, a certain kind of hysteria or anxiety, you know, that, that mm -hmm. given, given that I am the universe within which all of these incredible events have taken place, that I, um, that I am that moment in the universe when the universe has become conscious in the human in this peculiar way where for the first time perhaps the universe is able to look back and gasp in awe and wonder at the extraordinary trail that is revealed of the, the history of, 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 of where we've come from and how we come to be here, that there's something invulnerable about that, that, um, the, you know, if we are merely human, then, um, of course, uh, um, we're going to die uh, sooner or later, later, I hope. But uh, as the universe... Um, there's something like so uh, eternal and so unshakable about that, that to the extent that the processes that we engage in allow us to authentically feel this uh, sense of identity, this sense of connection, um, then we can come back to the uh, engagement and the activism. We can come back to our incarnation in, you know, um, the 21st century and all of the the travails of this time with a certain kind of disinterested and um, and uh, passionate but not hysterical um, kind of an engagement. And so um, I feel that uh, um, I need to, to be constantly reminded of this. You know, the 10 times a year might be how often I need a real couple of days when I'm not thinking about anything else and when I'm not surrounded by, you know, a vast sea of people who are in a different kind of a space. It's really difficult to maintain 
this kind of consciousness, this kind of awareness in the humdrum and the pell-mell of, you know, just modern life. And, um, you know, and I think that Indigenous peoples, um, they perform their ceremonies of um, um, honouring, you know, all of our ancestors and remembering who we really are, you know, the, our, our interconnectedness with all that is. They do this over and over again, many times a year, at least 10 times a year. So perhaps it's not just because I'm such a thick and dull modern human <laughs> that I need it so often, but it may be that that's just something that human beings need over and over again in order to, um, in order to function uh, at their peak. Yes, that is such a good reminder, a reminder about being reminded that this isn't something we just come to understand once, but then we'll, we'll forget again or get distracted again. And of course, humans have always had rituals and ways to come back to who we really are and what really matters. And I, I love how you talk about how this kind of context for our identity can help us find more passion to love and protect life and, and not the hysteria, not maybe the panic. It's, it's a paradoxical thing where somehow the stakes get lower, but the, the passion for it can also grow at the same time. At, at the end of my workshops these days, I actually warn everybody that, uh, you know, um, always I can say this extraordinary high elated feeling and this sense of connection that we all feel towards the earth and towards each other. Uh, I, I'm sorry to have to break the news that this doesn't last for very long and that um, there, there are some practices that we do that will help, you know, practices that you can do as an individual uh, in your life that will help to extend it, that will help us to remember, but that um, in my experience, the only way to keep this is to keep renewing it. And that it, I, I, I describe it as being like the most sumptuous feast, but uh, unfortunately, however much you indulge in this feast, you're gonna be hungry again in a day or two. And that's just how things are. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, because uh, sometimes people uh, get very, very disappointed and um, that's not helpful. You know, I, I would be so grateful if someone could discover a way, you know, a magic um, process which would uh, allow us to um, move into this feeling of union with the earth and engagement and so on that didn't fade. But so far, um, I haven't come, come across that. Yeah. I, I think it's probably, as you said, why, why humans in life-sustaining cultures have always had frequent rituals for reminder, practices and, and methods for coming back to it. I wonder if thinking about other types of practice like meditation practice or any way of kind of engaging psychedelics or other ceremonies that Every time you come around, maybe it's possible to spiral a little deeper and maybe it lasts until the next one in a slightly more sustained way. I mean, I can hear in the way you're speaking that it's not like you completely forget and you're back to when you were working for IBM and feeling disconnected, right? You're, you're sustaining a certain amount of this sense of connection. Do you feel well, like that's fun. deepened over time? Like that every time you do it, you get a little more anchored? Well, it, it did even over time until, I guess, six years ago when uh, I had uh, the first of several life-threatening events that uh, um, shocked me into, you know, especially with a, with a, a young uh, child, shocked me into um, just a space where uh, I had little uh, attention for anything except staying alive and trying to create the conditions for you know, good personal health. And um, it's certainly, you know, and I actually went for some years without um, doing any of this kind of work. And it's, uh, I haven't fully recovered from that. I've, I've now done, you know, half a dozen workshops and uh, I've organized a lot more, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm picking up speed again. And 
I hope to move back into um, the kind of uh, optimal state that I remember and perhaps um, with any luck to be able to even go further than I have before. But, um, uh, you know, it, it, definitely, uh, it definitely fades away, what mm-hmm. for me it did. And I've, I've heard about uh, enlightenment and, uh, you know, as some kind of a permanent condition that people can reach through meditation and perhaps in other ways, but uh, I'll have to confess that um, <laughs> I haven't had that experience. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I wonder if for for listeners or just for me, um, as we're talking about this, if there's anything you might want to share, a deep time story or practice even that might translate in this audio podcast form. You've been giving us pieces of it for sure. I've heard the the phrase, the earth as peppercorn. I know that's something you tell, but I haven't heard that. Is there any little experiential thing we might offer listeners right now? So the Earth as Peppercorn is a beautiful uh, process that was created by uh, Guy Otwell, the professor of astronomy at the University of South Carolina. And um, he didn't create it as a deep ecology process, as a, as a way of expanding our identity. Of, um, but um, the thing about the processes that we use, um, the workshops that I do these days, there's only a couple of the uh, pieces that were there in Thinking Like a Mountain, the book I wrote with Joanna and others in 1986. The Council of All Beings is in there, but most of the other things I do now have emerged since then. And what I've realised, and um, with Joanna's help, is that uh, it actually got nothing to do with the particular processes that we use, that it's the intention uh, that actually creates the experience, that any time a group of people gets together for a couple of days or less, but certainly you know, for a couple of days with the shared intention to heal that illusion of separation between ourselves and the living earth, the illusion of separation, that that intention... Um, allows whatever we do after that to have the impact that it does. Of course, the processes that we use need to be congruent with that intention. But um, so, you know, even though Guy Otwell introduces the earth as peppercorn as, I think he says something like, if you want to inspire someone to be excited about um, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, astronomy, um, there's no better way than this. But once we do this in the context of an experiential deep ecology workshop with this shared intention, it has an extraordinary impact on our sense of who we are underneath this social identity. So I'm reluctant to expand on this process because it, it's a spoiler, uh, it's kind of a spoiler alert. The, the less that you know about it, when you first do it, the more profound the impact that it'll have on you, that as a set of ideas, it's interesting enough, but it's really as an experience that, um, that its real importance um, reveals itself. And so uh, I would definitely encourage people who facilitate this work to uh, look it up and to facilitate it because it's easy to do and uh, you don't need training from anyone or anything like that. Um, but uh, I'd rather not talk about it here. Do you, yes, you know? that what, makes what perfect I will sense. Do, yeah. what, what I will do is talk about a couple of processes. You see, that is not one that works nearly as well by yourself in your life. It works best if you're with a group of people in a workshop. Um, but uh, there's a couple of processes which they're the things that I talk to people about in the uh, going forth at the end of Sunday afternoon, at the end of the weekend, when we ask, well, you know, what can we do in the rest of our lives um, in between workshops? And one of the things um, I find particularly useful, and it's a process called breathing with trees. Um, and uh, I'll need to give a bit of background uh, to it first. So 
in the workshops that I do at the moment on Saturday evening, as it's getting dark, we do a process called the Cosmic Walk. And the Cosmic Walk also wasn't created as a deep ecology exercise. It was, uh, it was created by a Catholic nun, Sister Miriam Therese McGillis, who lives in a community called Genesis Farm, New Jersey. And um, she was a uh, colleague and uh, mentee, I suppose, of the uh, great uh, late uh, Thomas Berry, one of the um, most important Catholic theologians, progressive theologians of the 20th century. And he spoke about the story of the universe as revealed by empiricism, the story of the universe as revealed by science, the Big Bang, the creation of galaxies, um, the supernova explosion that gave rise to the debris out of which our sun formed and the gradual emergence of the, the planets in our solar system, one of which the Earth four and a half billion years ago and the story of evolution that's continued since that time. That story as revealed by science, Thomas Berry says that that is the um, creation myth for our age, that uh, the, the Bible story that he grew up with about Adam and all of that, he said it's just like every culture has to find some way to explain this extraordinary mystery of how we come to be here and what this means. And that um, that the, the universe story, as revealed by empiricism, includes all of those stories. One of the things that happened in that universe story was that two and a half thousand years ago or so, the, you know, this new group of stories came along, Judaism, Christianity, um, Buddhism, Islam, and so on, each with their own creation myth. And that um, in the modern age, the universe story is the creation myth that can unite, potentially unite all of these, that a Buddhist astronomer, a Hindu astronomer, a Muslim astronomer, a, a Christian astronomer, all can agree when they look through a telescope at what they're seeing and can agree upon the interpretations. So Sister Miriam created um, the Cosmic Walk uh, as a ceremony to give voice to Thomas's insight. and. Uh, so we create a spiral of known length, and along that spiral, we have a number of uh, tea light candles. And um, while we chant something called uh, Child of the Universe, I am a child of the universe, uh, someone walks around lighting one candle after the other as we tell the story of the emerging of the universe. And um, two of those candles, I think it's number five and number six, tell the story First, number five tells the story of when our ancestors were single-celled organisms floating in the oceans. And up until now, the oceans have had all of the nutrients that were needed to sustain ourselves. So we would consume those nutrients, we would divide, we would multiply, but eventually we had consumed all of the freely available nutrients in the ocean and there was a crisis of starvation. And this was solved by some of us inventing a new molecule, chlorophyll, which allowed us to capture photons of light from the sun and that increased um, tremendously the energy that we had and allowed us to break previously inaccessible molecules. So we were able to uh, break um, CO2 and extract the carbon and break H2O and extract the hydrogen and uh, thereby create the um, carbohydrates that we needed to continue our life and created a new source of food for the microbial population of that time. And so we light a candle to celebrate that extraordinary feat of our ancestors to do that. But an unanticipated consequence of that was that for every atom of carbon and every atom of hydrogen that we were able to, to glean, oxygen was released and oxygen was a toxic poison to the anaerobic life of that time. There was no free oxygen at that time. Mm. For a billion years, that oxygen was unable to wreak any havoc because there was so much iron brought up from the magma 
as lava. There was so much iron in the ocean in its soluble ferrous form that the moment any oxygen was released, it would combine with um, an atom of iron and a molecule of ferrous oxide of rust would fall to the floor of the ocean. And so it took a billion years before all of the iron had been used up that way. And then we light another candle to um, celebrate the next great event, which was that um, uh, as the oxygen piled up and began to threaten the anaerobic life at that time with poisoning, again, some of those, um, some of those microbes invented another molecule, and this one was the heme molecule, the ancestor of the haemoglobin that um, circulates through all animal bodies. And these ones were able to utilize the oxygen and were able to remove the oxygen um, and, uh, and stabilize uh, this system. And so the um, first of these candles represents chlorophyll. And that is uh, in our modern world, everything green that we see in the world, all of the leaves, all of the grasses contain that chlorophyll that is able to extract light from the sun and remove the uh, carbon from CO2 and release the oxygen. And all of the animals are the descendants of this, this um, second miraculous event of the heme molecule, and they're the animals. And this ancient cycle of partnership has continued to the present day. So that every time we breathe out, um, Carbon dioxide has had a pretty bad rap for very good reason of late, but it has a hugely honorable and important history. And so the process that um, I, I recommend to people and which actually people could do now if they're anywhere near something green and it could, can be an open window looking out at a tree or it could be a potted plant in your room could be a single blade of grass in the sidewalk. Um, we do a meditation where we attempt to feel a sense of generosity with each outbreath. We remember that this outbreath contains CO2, which is exactly what all of these green things need in order to survive. Without this CO2, they have no existence. They can't, they can't live without it. And as we inhale, we remember that this oxygen is being produced by this green world and we allow ourselves to feel gratitude for this, that without this oxygen, I couldn't exist. And so we celebrate this ancient cycle of partnership, which goes back billions of years to the, these single-celled organisms that invented uh, chlorophyll and invented heme. And we, um, we alternate between generosity and gratitude. And this nourishes our ecological identity. I've in years past found myself in New York City going from meeting to meeting and totally demoralized and um, lost and losing all my sense of purpose and a single, um, you know, a single plant in a pot uh, on the 50th story of some building winks at me and I stop for five minutes and share breath with that and it fixes me right up. <laughs> Ah, that's wonderful. I'm doing it now with a jasmine plant outside my window here. Um, oh, I just love that. I can I can relate so much to that demoralized feeling. And then if I can wink at a plant and there, you know, thankfully we have them in urban environments. There are still green leaves breathing with us. Thank you so much for that practice. Um, I'm sure many people will go and try that. And just to steep in that gratitude and generosity, what a life-giving thing. And thank you for the bit of the universe story too there with the imagery of the candles and, and going back, way back in time. That's a gift. So once, once again, um, uh, it's one thing to read this and it's marvelous enough. It's, it's all inspiring and so on. But it's the actual practice of walking around that spiral. It's the actual practice of being in a circle with people chanting and remembering these things together that the really important changes take place. Mm -hmm. However, having said that, um, if people want to um, visit the Rainforest Information Centre website and go to Deep Ecology, 
and then go to um, the epic of evolution. And there, one of the links is to the cosmic walk. And when you go there, you'll find, I, I don't know, at, at least a dozen different versions of this story of um, the evolution of the universe uh, as, you know, each person is really at liberty to choose their own, you know, like if you had to choose what are the 20 most important things that have happened in the last 14 billion years, you might come up with a different list than the ones that I have in my candles in Cosmic War. And many people have, uh, have, have told this story and each of them is, is really worth, uh, worth looking at and, um, uh, you know, feeling the inspiration and the gratitude to be part of such an extraordinary universe as this. Great. I will put a link in the show notes right to that Cosmic Walk page so people can check that out. That sounds great. Yeah. And so now you've given us this treat of expanding way out and feeling ourselves in, in such a wide context and identity. I would love in our final minutes here to zoom back into the miraculous manifestation of the universe called John Seed protecting rainforests and life on earth right now. And just invite you to talk about some of that side of what you're thinking about and what you're doing. I don't know how, I know that the campaign in Ecuador recently had a major court case victory, but yeah, what, what's happening right now for you? Well, um, in, in the same way as I, uh, dropped out of my deep ecology work for some years uh, the same thing happened to uh, my activism and I'm only slowly moving back in that direction but um, I've been involved in the protection of rainforest in Ecuador for um, you know more than 30 years and one of the places that we helped to create right back then was um a biological reserve called Los Cedros um, in the in Western Ecuador, uh, cloud forest, um, one of the most diverse places on earth. And over the decades, we've had to save it time and again, you know, that nothing save, stays saved, mm. I've found. You know, that um, unfortunately, once you lose it, it's gone forever. But once you save it, you only save it till the next threat. <laughs> and uh, that's fine. That's just how it is. So, you know, we've saved it from loggers and from poachers and from land developers and so on. But most recently, uh, a corrupt decision by the Ecuadorian government allowed mining companies to have access to forests um, uh, that were categorized as Boscus protectoris, bad pronunciation, but anyway, protected forests, supposedly. But they've allowed mining companies in. And Los Cedros is one of these, and there's a mining company active there. And uh, so we initiated uh, a court case that went to the um, uh, Supreme Court of Ecuador, which is the Constitutional Court. And uh, our, um, I think we, 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 it probably cost us uh, $50,000 in legal costs over the years that we raised um, in various uh, moves in this direction. And our main uh, grounds were that the Ecuadorian constitution was the first one in the world to grant rights to nature, just the same way as there are laws about human rights in many countries, there are now laws about the rights of nature. And we claimed in our case that uh, mining was, um, you know, uh, going against the rights of nature and against this law. And um, to our amazement, the Constitutional Court agreed and uh, they ejected the miners from Los Cedros. And one of the upshots of this is that it's a precedent. Los Cedros is very, very valuable in its own right. Um, uh, thousands and thousands of acres of some of the most, you know, biodiverse, and glorious uh, uh, forest uh, in the world. But there are two million hectares of Boxcus protectoris that are similarly threatened. And even in the um, few months since this court decision, the first of these have started initiating court cases uh, of their own using Los Cedros as a precedent. And 
um, we've started raising funding to support these communities to protect their forests. And so uh, I'm very excited that um, in some ways this is the culmination of the life's work that uh, nothing that um, we've achieved so far, you know, including some really important successes in Australia and protecting rainforests in New South Wales and uh, Tasmania and Queensland, uh, nothing uh, compares to uh, potentially what the um, implications of this court victory might be. Yeah, that's really incredible that to have rights of nature being used successfully like that. I will definitely link as well to the Rainforest Information Center so folks can see how to contribute because I'm sure there are more legal fees coming. I'm, I'm curious whether given all that, you think that the rights of nature is a is a likely a really good direction for people to pursue. You know, I know there are some groups working on that in localities in the U.S. and maybe in Australia as well. What do you think about this as a strategy, the rights of nature? Well, as I say, I've, I've been out of the loop for you know five or six years, and mm-hmm. so I'm not. You know, it's hard for me to compare that to other things. But um, if if um, if it's not overturned in Ecuador and there is no higher court, the only way it could be overturned is, I guess, if the government overturns the courts. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, like the mining companies, this is billions and billions of dollars. Uh, and so uh, they're not going to take it lying down. But um, if, uh, if it can be sustained, then I can't think of anything more important, uh, you know, and... Uh, I think it would definitely be worthwhile for other countries to be pursuing a similar thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad that we have you back in the loop now. I know there's a lot that uh, you've mentioned a few things that you've missed in these last six years. And so I'm looking forward to hearing about what unfolds for you now that you're feeling up for re-engaging with so much of what you love. Is there anything else before we wrap up that's on your mind that you would like to share with listeners? It could be about anything. Well, just uh, just want to thank you for. Um, I I sort of feel like when I uh, went into hibernation, as I say, five or six years ago, I was unaware of podcast. I don't think that I'd heard the word podcast, but in the meantime. Um, you know, I, I might have been a late adopter, but in the meantime, it's clear what an important role podcasts play in um, in um, spreading awareness and in allowing like-minded communities to be focusing uh, on things like what we're doing today. You know? And so uh, I'm looking forward to um, doing more podcasts in the future. And in fact, I, I recently wrote to Joanna Macy. I haven't, uh, you know, we exchange emails once a year or something. We love each other, but uh, we're all busy with other things. And and I said to her that uh, um, I'd heard a I'd heard a podcast, uh, a, a Tim Ferriss podcast, one of, you know, which has huge listeners. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was um, uh, talking to Jack Cornfield, uh, who's a Buddhist meditation teacher that uh, I admire. And in the course of that, Jack Cornfield mentioned uh, the Council of All Beings and Joanna Macy and John Seed. And I, I said to wow. Joanna, why don't we see if Jack Cornfield wants us on his podcast? Let's have a reunion if he's up for it. And yeah. she wrote back immediately saying, yes, great idea. And so I just sort of feel like um, very grateful to you because um, I'm feeling a little bit rusty. I'm feeling like a car that hasn't uh, turned over in years. And, you know, I'm, I'm feeling quite happy with the way that we've spent our hour together and it gives me uh, uh, courage to make more moves in this direction. Oh, good. Well, that makes me really happy. I've loved our hour and I'm excited to hear more from you. So that's fantastic. Thank you very much for making the time and making the time zone thing work and talking with me today. Oh, well, thank you. Um, thank you for your work, Lana. And thank you so much for listening. Be sure to visit the show notes for this episode at turningseason.com slash episode 17. 
For all the links to the Rainforest Information Center, the Cosmic Walk, the books we mentioned, and a few more, I'll be back with a news episode on the new moon. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.